Has this experience ever been yours? You're talking with someone and maybe you're in a heated discussion with them uh, and, and things are winding down in that discussion and the other person looks at you and says, well, I'm just going to pray for you. Have you ever had that experience? What do you want to do in that setting? Do you just want to uh, reach across and give them a little love tap on the cheek? You know, uh, What do you want to do? Maybe you've been that person that has said that. Do we take those prayers seriously? Now, have you ever had this experience? You've been in a dark place, you, or you've been in a hard place. You've been in a challenging place. And someone dear to you has said, I'm going to pray for you. Do you take that prayer seriously? In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking to these Christians after he's discussed the problems and the conflicts there in that church. And now he says, I pray for you. And as we look at his prayers, sometimes when we see the prayers of the apostles in scriptures, it's, it's easy for us to just kind of gloss over them and say, let's not talk about that. I see that's a prayer. Let me move on to the next big, important theological section in this work. But sometimes we need to stop and look at that prayer because we can learn some great things. When we look at this prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, we learn a tremendous amount about God's love. Paul prays for them about God's love. And so this morning we want to look at this prayer. And as we look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, uh, beginning uh, here in verse 11, excuse me, in verse 14, as we look at this, this prayer, what I want us to notice this morning, first of all, is the substance of his prayer. And then we want to look at the substance of the doxology. We'll explain what that is. Uh, and then we want to think about the significance of this prayer for you and I, or for you and me, rather. So let's begin by looking at Paul's prayer for these Christians. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Notice what Paul says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. So we begin by looking at Paul's prayer here, and notice Paul doesn't say, I'm praying for you. But certainly that is the imagery that we see as he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And look at verse 16. He says, that he would grant you. So when we look at the imagery uh, of him falling on his knees before the Father in some way for these Christians, then he says that he may grant. So even though Paul doesn't say, I'm praying for you, certainly we have the imagery and the language of someone saying, I'm praying that God will give you something. He's praying for these Christians. He's praying for this church or the churches that read this letter. And now notice the substance. Notice what he says in verse 15, the substance of this. He says, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. 
And, and this is one of those passages, one of these verses, we can look at this and we say, well, this is just Paul using flowery language. This is just Paul trying to, to say things that sound good. This is just fluff and stuff, we might say. But really it's not. This is hardcore content for these Christians because these are Christians that are fighting amongst themselves. These are Christians that are struggling with one another over the Jew and Gentile controversy. And he has just said a few verses before, remember they're not, they're reading this as a single letter. They don't have it marked out in chapter and verse. This is just a statement that Paul has made uh, just, just a while earlier in his letter to them. That in chapter 2 and verse 19, even the Gentiles are part of the household, family, of God. And he's reinforcing that. And he's also said earlier in his letter to these Christians, in chapter 1 and verse 5, that in him, in Christ, you all now have adoptions as sons. Again, the family of God. Paul's not just saying some flowery language here to just kind of make them feel good. He's reinforcing those concepts that you as a church ought to be a single family. They are the family of God. And he's reminding them that every family derives its name from God. God is the authority. God is the source. God is the base. God is the center. And so you have all of that. But then he's also reminding these Jews and these Gentiles that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're still originating from God. It's not an accident that Paul uses this language. Paul's not just some poet and he doesn't know it and he's trying to uh, uh, say some flowery language. He's reminding them that everything comes from God. He's the authority. He's the head. And then as we look at this prayer, we see the what and the purpose. The what and the purpose. What is he praying for on behalf of these Christians? Notice this verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That is the what. That is what he is praying for on behalf of these Christians, that God would grant them to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, or by the Spirit, His Spirit, in the inner man. I'm going to have a little excursus here for just a second, because when we read a passage like this, we see a phrase like this, that He grant that you'd be strengthened with power through the Spirit, uh, people want to pull that out, and make that say all sorts of things. What does that mean? How's the Holy Spirit going to strengthen you? How's the Holy Spirit going to do this? And, and we want to assign all sorts of things uh, to the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt that Paul intends to show here 
that the Holy Spirit is the agent strengthening these Christians. However, much more than that, we can't know. There's much we want to know about the Holy Spirit, but God has chosen not to reveal that to us as to how the Holy Spirit works. And we need to be content with that sometimes. There are things we wish we knew about how the Holy Spirit works that God just chooses not to tell us. And we ought to be fine with that. But there are some things we need to keep in mind. There are numerous passages with reference to the Spirit uh, in our hearts or dwelling in us or given to us. We could cite, for instance, Romans chapter 5, 5. We could talk about Romans chapter 8, verse 19. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit given it to you as a pledge of, your, of our inheritance. But it doesn't mean uh, that the Holy Spirit, Paul's not praying for them here, that the Holy Spirit will keep them from ever sinning. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to give them special powers to always do the right thing, that sort of thing. There's a couple passages to keep in mind that I think are interesting as we think about the Holy Spirit. Uh, first is 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 10, uh, the, apostle, or the, the prophet Samuel has anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. And it says that the Holy Spirit came on him mightily, that is, came on Saul mightily. Do you know Paul, or excuse me, do you, re do you realize that Saul as king, made some huge plunder, blunders. I'm messing up right now. Uh, but but Paul made, Saul made some huge blunders uh, as king, even though we're told that the Holy Spirit came on him mightily. He builds a statue to himself after military victory. And the prophet Samuel asks him, uh, what's that all about? Samuel gave him specific instructions as the prophet of God those instructions coming from God, and Saul disobeyed those very blatantly. And because of that, God says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so we come over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 13, and Saul, Samuel now anoints David to be the new king of Israel, even though he's going to have to wait for a period of time for that to happen. Uh, but he anoints him king. And it says in verse 13, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit came on David mightily. And then a verse or two later it says, and the Spirit of God departed from Saul. So what did David do while he had the Holy Spirit on him mightily? Well, he sees Bathsheba out bathing in the night, uh, and he lusts, commits adultery, lies about it, covers it up with murder, and tries to get away from it, away from it. Folks, if the Spirit, having the Spirit means that you're never going to sin and you're always going to do the right thing, people want to go to Galatians chapter 5 and talk about the fruit of the Spirit and say, if you have the Spirit in you, you're going to produce all these good things and all these bad things are going to go away from you. Well, some of those bad things include lust and fornication. But David did all those. So a little excursus on what this means by saying that, that uh, as Paul's praying for these Christians, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit. Folks, we got to just leave it at that and not just extract it from this passage. That would be taking this passage out of context. I believe that Paul's saying what he means. He's praying that God in some way is going to grant these Christians that they're going to be strengthened 
by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit. And whether that means through Paul's teaching as an inspired apostle, because he's just spent two, two, two and a half chapters talking to them about a problem that they had. Whether that means through the uh, teachings of the other apostles, maybe through letters or whatever, maybe that's it. Maybe it means through some direct operation of the Holy Spirit in this apostolic age for these Christians. Maybe that's it. We don't know. We don't need to worry about that. God chose not to tell us how that was going to be. But he's praying for these Christians. So now we come back to the text and, and we see the what. And the what is uh, that God would grant them according to the riches of his grace or the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the what he prayed for them. I want you to be strengthened. Now, here's the purpose. That's the what. Look at the purpose. So that, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in you. There's four purposes here. Number one, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that's an important purpose. Because these are Christians that were struggling with their relationship with Christ, in part, again, because of that, that Jew-Gentile uh, controversy. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, he reminds them, you are saved by faith through grace, not because of your works. We talked about that in, in an earlier lesson. He, he, he says to them in, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, that you are made alive with Christ. In fact, look at chapter 2 and, and notice these verses. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing uh, uh, riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see all the times he talked about or referenced us being saved or raised or seated with Christ. And so as we come back to chapter 3 and G Paul is praying for these Christians, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All of this is tied to the fact that Christ is there in faith. He raised us up with Christ in faith. And now he's praying that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us, or strengthen these Christians, rather, so that they can understand and know that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. That's the first purpose. But then the second purpose, he says, in verse 17 also, is, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. So the second one is that you'll be rooted in love. And the third thing is so that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And he's going to tie that back to the love of Christ. 
Last week we saw him talk about the manifold, the many-sided uh, love of God. And here he's praying for these Christians that they might be able to comprehend all the different sides of love, of God's love. And then in verse 19, he gives us the, the, the fourth. And that is to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So we can comprehend it and we can know it. Now what's ironic and a little bit uh, contradictory here is he says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. He's praying for these Christians uh, that they can have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith and, and to know his love and to comprehend his love and, and to know the, the, the dimensions of God's love for these Christians. So that's the what and the purpose, but think about the why. Think about the why for these Christians. This was a church in turmoil, as we've already said. Paul spent all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 tackling the issue that really boiled down to the fact that you had a church that had Gentiles and it had Jews. And evidently there were some Jews in this community that really were going after those Gentile Christians saying, you're not really a Christian unless you are circumcised. You're not really a good Christian unless you are practicing uh, the aspects of the Old Testament law. And so remember we looked at chapter 2 and we asked the question, what works does Paul have in mind? And we saw, hey, when you really look at chapter 2, uh, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that all those ordinances contained in the Old Testament law were nailed to the cross. And Jesus has taken them out of the way through the cross so that the two, the Jew and the Gentile, can become one man in Christ. In other words, if you were a part of this community that Paul's writing to, and you were a Gentile, you had some folks in that church that said, you're not good enough. And evidently they had convinced some of those Gentile folks by saying, you're not good enough. Because you're a Gentile. And you're not circumcised. And you're not following the law. And then you had folks in that church that were Jewish by ethnicity, and they thought they had it made in the shade. And Paul's saying, no, guys, you had blown it too. And you were undeserving of a relationship with God. And he spent the three chapters saying it doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, apart from being in Christ. You didn't have a relationship with God. But God loved you so much, and it doesn't matter what has transpired in your life previously. He loves you so much that you can't even begin to understand or comprehend or truly know the love that he has for you. And so Paul tells them all this, and now he's praying for them. And his prayer is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen their hearts 
that they can truly believe that Christ can take the sins out of their lives and truly believe that somehow with Christ they are raised up with Him and seated with God in the heavenly places and that they somehow are going to have everlasting eternal life with God in heaven. And all of that, Paul says, is by faith. And he says, I'm just praying for you that somehow God will work in your inner man in your, through the Holy Spirit so that you can get it. And he says, I pray that the Holy Spirit strengthens your heart so that you can understand that love. And all this stuff about the height and the width and the, the depth and the, the, the length. He said, I want you to know how far it goes for you. How high it goes for you. How, how far down it goes for you. What its length is for you. Can you imagine a box or a container that goes on in every dimension to infinity that we can't even understand being full of God's love for you and for me? And Paul says, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you so that you can get that. And he says, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you so that you can have the knowledge of his love, which is beyond knowledge. He does that on purpose to say that we can't, in our human minds, know how great God's love is for you and me. And he prays that they can know those things. A church in turmoil because there are some saying, you're not good enough. And Paul says, yes, you are. Because that's how much God loves you. So we come to the doxology in verse 20. And it's a, it's a great doxology. Doxology is just a big, ugly term that means a praise, a poem of praise. And this is that poem of praise that he ends his prayer with. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. I think the NIV says to all we can ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Those Gentiles in that church who are sitting there being told by others, you're not good enough. Paul says, you can't even begin to imagine all that God can do for you. God's able to do more for you than you can even think to ask. What an awesome statement of praise to God. God's not limited by what we can think of. God's not limited by what we can imagine. God's not limited by what we can ask. And so we are saved by grace through faith. The faith being, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. Look at the mess that 
I've made of my life, God. And have faith to know, yes, he loves you enough to fix it, to clean it up, so that you can spend an eternity with him. Because in faith, you've already been raised with Christ Jesus to be where he's at, at his Father's side. And so that brings us back to where this prayer is for you and me. Paul was saying this prayer to a group of Christians. We think it may be more than one church because the way the letter is addressed seems to imply that it was a circulatory letter. They went to some churches, maybe in Asia Minor, and Ephesus was maybe the last place that it ended up, or maybe the first place that it was sent. But there were some Christians in that area, and they were struggling because some were saying, you're not good enough. And Paul says, yes, he is, because God made you good enough. Christ made you good enough. His love is more than abundant to make you good enough. And as we read this letter that Paul writes to somebody else and we see the prayer that Paul prays for somebody else, there are implications for us. And that implication is, is just as Paul's telling these Christians that God has made you all into a single household, has made you into a single family, has adopted them as sons and daughters. Folks, he has adopted you and me as his sons and daughters, and he has brought you and me into his family. Because that big box of lists that goes off in every direction, every dimension to infinity is big enough by far to cover the love or provide the love that God has for you and me. It doesn't matter what's transpired in your life. It doesn't matter what blunders you may have made in the past. It doesn't matter where you have been. His love is deep enough for you. And he wants you to bask in the glory of his love. He wants you to, through faith, rise with him and be with him where he's at, at his father's side. He wants you to be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a hard time thinking about God's love for you. We can look at this prayer and assure you his love is deep enough, wide enough, tall enough, long enough for you. If you need to pray to the church, or maybe you need to be united with Jesus in baptism, whatever you need, once you come, Together we stand and sing.